You're listening to Data Plus Love. I'm here this week with a Tableau Zen master, Tuan Huang. I'm staying in London this week, as I did last week with Sarah Bartlett. You probably know him from Tableau Magic, which is the fantastic community and blog that he's created himself. It also has a fantastic Facebook group. Uh, Tableau Magic is, you're going to correct me on this in a second, like Sarah did when I described what uh, Iron Quest was, but Tableau Magic is like the mad scientist corner of the Tableau community. Is that a fair assessment? I've firstly, thank you for the introduction, and I've never heard of it mentioned in that way before. But now that you mention it, yeah, that sounds about right. It's anything and everything weird and wacky. That's a great way of putting it. I mean, I, I'm obviously taking the positive spin on it. If you want to go negative, it could be the data viz war criminal side of Tableau. Um, but no, it's it's fantastic. It's the it's the exploration and joy of what can you do with this tool. And then it's incumbent on the recipient to decide, is this the right thing to do? Yeah, that is a way to put it. Although the Al Capone of data visualization suddenly hit me and that sounds pretty awesome. That does sound pretty awesome. You should put that on your business cards. Done. hundred percent. And I already used the word fantastic twice to describe you in my intro, which I don't script at all. So that tells you how highly I think of you and what you do. So um, yeah, this has been a heck of a year for you. Um, your community is taking off in terms of membership. You've got very vocal people spinning out of that. Like Adam Miko came out of nowhere, basically with your telling him to engage further. And as of yesterday, he had 1500 Twitter followers, as he was telling me, which is crazy. Um, everyone loves Adam. So what's going on with you and this blog and this community that you've set up that is producing just such fantastic results? Fantastic third time. Third time's a charm. I think. Well, if you want my opinion, I think the case with Adam is that Adam's a great guy, great energy, just overall wonderful person. And he found a place where he could feel comfortable, be himself. And I slowly nudged him into kind of getting more involved. And that's what I try to do with many, many people. The community that I've, with Adam's help, has built on Facebook is growing. But for the most part, it's a lot of passive participants. The ones that become a bit more active, they will get in touch, we will chat to each other, propose ideas, plans. There's two new people that have come on that potentially could do a lot more. And it's just about support, really. Support and giving as much as we can and just allowing people to find their own way. So what led you to do this in the first place? I mean, we could go back to the beginning and say, what's your story? How did you discover Tableau? And more importantly, how did you decide you could break it in uh, fabulous ways? But um, why create sort of a community based around the idea of sort of white hat hacking of Tableau? I think the key is that I believe by pushing boundaries is the way we find out who we are. By experiencing the extremes, we understand more what we want and what we don't want. And therefore, having a community where people just push the boundaries. And we always say, you know, there's best practice and then there's how far you can go to push the extremes. Hell, we had SpaceX. They just launched a, a commercial spacecraft. It's about pushing as much as possible and then always having a mind to draw, draw ourselves back to a safer place. But it's something that did not really exist that much before. I'm not by no means the pioneer of this. There have been many before me. But the key is that I wanted this because this is who I am. I like to explore. And thankfully, quite a few people like what I do and they've joined in the party. So you're the Elon Musk of data visualization. 
Oh, not even close. I, I'm I'm putting that on you, not you. Um, but I think you're right. I think <laughs> I think it's important for us to push boundaries with with the knowledge that when you're pushing boundaries, you're often going to find things that aren't best practice and aren't applicable 99% of the time. If Elon Musk had accepted the fact when people told him solid rocket boosters don't land themselves, they crash down into the ocean at great expense. And he said, I don't accept that. I think we can do better. If Steve Jobs had not said, I think I can make a cell phone the size of a deck of cards uh, that has a screen made of glass that you touch and people told him you couldn't do it. So I think there's something very noble in that, that stuff doesn't move ahead unless people are experimenting and trying to find out what you can do and what is possible. And then it's up to everyone else to decide what is best, what's appropriate, or, you know, if there's a use case. And I think a lot of your stuff, um, maybe in most cases, you wouldn't choose this as your first option, but there is a case where this would be a good option. And if you deployed it in that scenario, it could be a very powerful explanation or use of your the tools that you've created. No, I 100% agree with that. It's about having more tools in the toolbox, as I put it, when I give my talks. If you only have a hammer, then you use a hammer on everything. If you have a million tools, then you could, as an expert, find the right tool for you. And it's not just about the information, it's about your audience. Some audiences need a bit more pizzazz. Some audiences do not. But having as many tools in the toolbox as possible, that's something that should be strived for by most people. Why just Absolutely. have one screw? You know, why, not, why just have one screwdriver, one hammer? I have in my toolbox multiple hammers for different occasions. If I want to take down a wall, I'm not going to use your standard nail hammer, am I? I mean, that's that's a very eloquent eloquent way of putting it because if if your one tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a hammer problem. You're going to try to be using the hammer to screw a nail in. I mean, it's going to be ineffective and unwieldy. Um, this is, I don't mean this as self-promotion, but I did an obnoxious baby shark viz yesterday. That was a pie chart. It, it wouldn't be the best chart for the, the choice, but I did it because it was obnoxious. Um, it went viral on Reddit and has spawned several more obnoxious charts that are similar, all of which are also not best use cases for this, like a Sankey chart to explain this on Baby Shark. If you were to try to visualize Baby Shark, you would do a bar chart. I mean, if you're counting the number of times things have repeated, it's the most obvious choice. But if I had just made a bar chart to represent Baby Shark, 18,000 people wouldn't have you know, said they liked it. Um, Mind you, it was intended to be obnoxious and to be something that people would share with someone else to sort of jab them a little bit. But yeah, there there is, you know, we say, and the big book of dashboard authors often say, you probably should have used a bar chart. And that's often the case. But sometimes someone wouldn't have looked at your thing in the first place if it were just a bar chart. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more with that. I think if you look at... The professional world and my professional work is often tables, bar charts, line graphs, because they are extremely clear. However, I have seen a trend and a movement away from that. I think people are now expecting a bit more. They want to be dazzled, not just have the information. And if I was to tell you that you, I could give you a car with the engine of Tesla, but it'll be in the, you know, it'll be basically, it'll look like a Honda Civic. It won't have the same experience. And some people want the shine. They want that Tesla exterior. They want to see that. And that is something I'm seeing more and more. Because 
for me, data visualization, and again, I have not read massively into this field, I have to confess. I try to chart my own path, learn my own mistakes, because I think that's where I learn the most. For me, when you're looking at what is good and what is bad, it's about trying stuff out, seeing if it works. And the most important thing for me is that people are engaged with what I do. So engagement is number one. You might have the most perfect dashboard. However, no one really gets excited. No one looks at it and it's relegated to, oh, by the way, there's that dashboard you might want to look at as opposed to getting excited. And again, it's a delicate balance. It's definitely a, a balance. And I recall uh, early on in my sort of public visualization stuff, I got into a little bit of a date, uh, debate with Mike Cisneros, uh, who at the time, Mike had about 3,000 Twitter followers and I had about 85. And I'm saying that only for context because I was uh, to sort of demo a lot of my public visits. I was creating animated GIFs of them to show a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that was going on in the viz. Like, here's my tool tips. Here's what happens when you filter. This is some stuff you could check out. And uh, Mike's argument was when you've created a quality viz, you people will be curious and come and explore and find those details for themselves. And my argument was when you only have 85 followers, you have to show that that stuff is there in the first place to even get people curious enough to come look. Um, and there's definitely a balance there um, between the are you going to go razzle-dazzle? In my case, I was saying I have to be a little P.T. Barnum because I don't have an audience. I have to say, hey, I am doing quality stuff. It's not just a flat viz. Uh, or in, whereas in Mike's case, he's already demonstrated that he's performing at that level. So he has more of an audience that know to look for that. Um, and I think that's a very good point you've made, that if you create the Tesla and it looks like a Honda Civic, oftentimes people aren't going to be as curious to dig in and get some more of those details. Um, instead of if you led them to it by making it pop a little bit more and draw their attention in. That is always the case. It's all about the colors, it's all about the market. So again, it's not that we, or not that I try to hide information. That's a, it's not like obscure information. It's about presenting it in a way that might require the end user to do a little bit more work, have a little bit more understanding. However, the engagement goes through the roof. So it's that trade-off. Yes, it's not, it might not be 100% clear and apparent immediately, but okay, after two seconds of playing with it, you get it. That's enough. Now they're excited, they're engaged, they're clicking all over the place, they're looking at everything. I don't recall ever looking at a bar chart and thinking, I need to click on that. Well, I think of Marie Kondo and it's like, does this inspire joy? And something I try to, when I know I'm creating a viz for a specific narrow audience, and I know that person, this is with my work product, not necessarily my public stuff. I try to think, you know, what is this person going to respond to? Like, how can I get them curious to explore this? And I leveraged that by sort of uh, folding that back on itself by finding those cases of users that weren't, you know, super into data who had become enthusiastic and really made some, uh, some insights based on some dashboards and exposed those stories back to my greater community at work saying, hey, look, here's somebody they, you know, they, with their permission, of course, that wasn't really um, that into this. And they did X, Y, and Z. They clicked through here. They had some theories. And then now they're doing this new experiment at work based on the insights they found because they didn't just accept, you know, I'm going to look at this flatly and take what's at a sort of very surface level with a uh, minimal curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. So this year has been a big year for you in the sense that you became a first time Zen master. Um, that is a big honor, of course. What 
what does that feel like? I mean, does that have any impact on your work product? Uh, does, does your, is your wife impressed by this? Like what's, what's it like to become a Zen master? It's, it's a strange one. A part of me feels like, wow, cool. Someone acknowledged my work. So it was a sense of validation because the amount of hours I put in was not because I wanted any form of validation. I don't really care for that type of stuff. However, it was nice to get. My wife has been telling me for a while that I deserve this. You know, she's not into IT, but she understands. She's been to enough Tableau user groups that she understands. Oh, this is Tableau Zen Master. You invest hundreds upon hundreds of hours into Tableau to create, to teach, to support. You should get this. But it was a surprise when I was nominated. I didn't fill in a form for myself. I think a lot of people did. And then I got the call, which was, again, another surprise. I, when I actually got the call, I thought it would be a rejection. It was so hilarious because I did not recognize the name of the person that was going to call me from Tableau. And I thought, oh, well, this is not Bridget. So chances are, you know, I'm out. So, yeah, it's has it changed my life? I don't really think it has. It might have motivated me to give a bit more. But to be honest, it's just a title on the CV for me. I think I, that's the... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I think it's because I haven't changed my working habits. I haven't changed my outputs. I still help as much as I can. So all of these things was in me, regardless of the Zen title. I um I think in some ways it'll change. It would change things in some ways it wouldn't. Like in terms of your sort of online persona, obviously it's a really nice accreditation to have. It elevates you sort of uh, visually. Um, in terms of work, depending on your work environment, it might have absolutely no impact. You know, um, depending on how plugged in people are to sort of recognizing what these uh, honorariums mean and, and what they don't, your your colleagues and your boss may or may not even know that you've received it. And if you have uh, how significant that is and sort of what percentage that puts you in, in terms of the overall community of people in the software. But uh, I think in most ways, yeah, yeah, I, I would imagine that's what the result would be like. Um, I know my wife is always like, hey, I hope you get ambassador this year. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that would be great, but I'm not doing any of this for that. I do this for like the love of the game, you know? Like I didn't start a, a podcast talking about this because I was hoping to, to catch awards. I did it just because I get the opportunity to make new friends and talk to old friends about doing the thing I love. So it's been really awesome to be talking uh, with you about this and as candid as you are about, um, about some of these things as well. Well, if I could just give my thoughts about that, I've been a teacher for many, many years. And I think one of the key aspects is to have momentum, to be able to keep momentum. And to be honest, shooting for a title, I if I was only doing this for Tableau Zen Master, I would have given up ages ago. It wouldn't get that. Obtaining a title, whether it's Tableau Zen Master, Ambassador, that's not going to give you enough energy. It's not going to feed the beast enough to keep you going for months, years. So I think you have to find something deeper, a love for a community, a love of teaching, a love of sharing, a love of connection. That type of passion results in the title, as opposed to kind of searching for that one goal and hoping that it'll make your life complete. So I think this is something that if you know people are listening and they want to get these titles, do what you're passionate about. Contribute in a way that you're passionate about. Be consistent. Keep going. Keep giving. And maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. But either way, you're doing something you're passionate about. Absolutely. Like if, if you're doing this and you're doing it because you're hoping hoping for the prizes, you're probably going to be really disappointed. And especially if you get them, because at that point, like what's next? Like you're chasing the dragon and you caught it now. Like there's nothing beyond that. 
if you're doing this because you love it and you're continually seeing new opportunities and you're, you know, expanding your focus, you're learning new skills, you're trying new visual tricks, you're, I mean, exploring new data sets, like that's why you hang on. You, if you're hanging on hoping, you know, one day I'm going to feel, you know, complete because I got, you know, the right honorarium. I think you're going to be really disappointed if it happens. Yeah, absolutely. This is why if you look at all the current Zen masters, they're still doing what they're doing. None of them have said, oh, now that I've got Zen master, I can slow down and stop. I've done it. I've reached the finish line. Because being a Zen master is not finish line. It's an acknowledgement of what you have done and the passion and the effort you've shown. Whereas I know there's quite a few people that want to shoot for, and it's a great thing to shoot for. But just be aware that it's not going to complete you. In no way will it. So I would be amiss if we went all this time and we didn't actually talk about any of your visas. <laughs> so I, I, I went through your public portfolio and I grabbed a couple of them. Like I could talk about all of them because all of them are so unique. And some of them, I look at that and it's like, I can see the use for this. And some of them, I feel like, what? Um, and I, I mean, I've teased you before on Twitter, like when someone has created a truly insane chart and I've tagged you saying this should be your next thing. But I was looking at your uh, your square spiral column chart, which if you can imagine a radial bar chart, but it's a spiral spiraling out from the middle, that's effectively what this is. So when you came up with this, and this, this is a curious part of your process to me, do you often think of, hey, I wonder if I can do this first, or does it happen by accident sometimes? Typically, it happens as I will get a crazy idea in my head. It's like cooking for me. I would have a moment where I have steak, I'll have cheese, and I'll have three other ingredients, and I'll think, what can I do with it? It's the same with a viz. I would see it. I'll think, oh, what about this idea? I'll let it fester. Chances are I'll put it into my backlog and just let it process at the back of my mind. And in one cold day, I would have two hours spare. I'll pick up one of the items, and I'll just try to tackle it. The square spiral column chart was one that was on my backlog for a while, I have to admit. I just did not understand the math at the time, and I did not have the time to work it out. But I think one day I was on a train and I was just thinking, okay, I'll try to tackle this. Got my sketchbook out, started drawing with a pencil, worked out the math, and I think I had it and then quickly hacked away at it. And there we go. We had the tutorial. I mean, so many of your charts are are visually impressive. Obviously, when you create your demos, you're very conscious of visual appeal and color and all of that. So I look at them and I'm often like, hey, that's pretty. And then I think, what on, I, I often think like, why? Um, so like your tilted <laughs> bar charts, which I think is a, is a more recent one. Um, it's literally bar charts that are canted. They're like diagonal. And yes. it's almost like you're you're faking like a 3D effect. Um, it it kind of has that feel to it. But, I, but my first impulse is to look at them like, why would you ever do this? Like, it's harder to read. But then I, you know, going back to the sort of the concept of, yeah, but did you know you could do this? Um, so in terms of some stuff like that, uh, obviously you are very sound in the mathematics department in order to be able to execute most of these ideas. Um, where did a lot of your foreknowledge come from in terms of that? Like, were you reading other Tableau blogs or was it just you figuring out sort of some of the behind the scenes mechanics yourself? I think the first instance was a sunburst by, I believe, Boran, Bora, I believe his name is. He created a sunburst chart, which I looked at and I thought, this is amazing. And then even better, he made it downloadable. And that was awesome. 
However, when I opened it up, I did not understand a single thing he was doing. There was data densification happening, table calculations happening, all sorts of crazy stuff. And guess what? I copied everything into Tableau and it still didn't work. So I said, what on earth was going on? And then I figured there was this edit table calculation thing going on. And then I started exploring this area. And once I got the hang of it, 90% of my charts use the same five or six tricks, which is why a lot of my followers on my blog, on my YouTube channel, once they go through enough of my tutorials, they'll see repeating patterns. How I use data densification, how I use table calculation, how I use basic sign, cosine, geometry. And most of it comes quite quickly, although more recently I'm trying to tackle some slightly more complicated math, which is not my forte. I'm not actually that strong in mathematics. Well, don't tell me that. I'm a Luddite compared to you. I mean, I, I'm happy whenever I see one of yours and I actually understand some of the underlying logic. So I think it was the negative space bar chart uh, that you did not too long ago, which is imagine a bar chart with an image behind it and the bar chart's transparent. I mean, you would think that might be a native functionality in Tableau since they can do transparent back backgrounds. I mean, effectively, what you're doing is you've inverted the values. So instead of having bars coming up, you're having the values coming down uh, yeah. to create the white space and the part that you're seeing through is actually the transparent background that is native to Tableau. Yeah, as an idea, you know, as you explain it, it's extremely simple. It's literally doing a window calculation, reversing the values, putting it on top, and just leveraging the functionality within Tableau. But once, because I did not know how to do that, I think I saw something a while ago, and I was pondering about it, and one day it came to me, I quickly blogged it, and I figured, ah, this is actually not too hard. So it's not... If you look at my tutorials, there are Tableau blogs, which are a bit more comprehensive, and then there are quick tips. This is actually a quick tip, the negative space charts, because it requires relatively few calculations. And once you understand the logic, it's actually pretty simple. I think it's a fascinating. Um, I'm going to bring my daughter into this. My oldest daughter is dyslexic. And people often look at dyslexia and think it's just a matter of jumbling letters. But really, it's an actual, your brain is physically wired differently than most people. So you actually mm -hmm. comprehend and perceive the world differently than a lot of people. And so many um, famous people have been successful, like Walt Disney and Steve Jobs and Spielberg are all dyslexic. And I think so much of what I think about when I, I think of how you create these Tableau hacks, it's looking at something from a different perspective, like taking the piece of paper and spinning it upside down. Like, what if I look at it this way? Whereas most people would just look from the bottom up. In this case, you're creating the bars coming down. It's not that much of a trick, really. Like you said, it's a tip, but it's a way of instead of drawing in the positive space, you're filling in the negative space. I mean, it's it's very creative. Um, and I, I look at so many of these, like the rendered rotated texts is another one that I found interesting. So I haven't actually dug into this one yet, and I haven't looked at the tutorial. Are these actually rendered characters in text and Tableau, or are these images that are being rotated? These are... <laughs> so this... <laughs> Actually, something that I got drunk one day and I was trying to figure out if I could do it. So the key is that I do a lot of radial charts, a lot of circular charts, and I would love the text to be able to rotate around the object. And it's been a bug in my life that I could not do that. Even just rotate the text by 45 degrees or 60 degrees. So I was thinking, what's the easiest way to do this? Now, one way would be to put in images and try to rotate them, but then I'll need infinite numbers of 360 different type of letter A's, for example, so I could rotate. But what I did instead is I actually got the individual points required 
So each of these letters, they're actually polygons. What? But that means I can rotate them by precise degrees. And therefore, if I want to actually write text going around the circle, I can use this technique. There's no tutorial because I haven't quite figured out how to make it really easy. But this is literally the Roboto Google font. I've extracted all the coordinates for the letters. And yeah, it's literally drawing it. And this is why you're a Zen master. Like if anyone, anyone listening right now, like this, if you were asking, why is he a Zen master, which you shouldn't have been now, you know, because you, that's fascinating. And I mean, yeah, absolutely. Like the amount of work that goes into that, just creating this demo is a lot, but then actually choosing to execute this. Like I was actually having that, that dream yesterday. So I created a super obnoxious song that never ends viz, which is a loop of all the texts of the song that never ends, where it's just a, it's a radial that rotates back on itself. And I'm like, wouldn't it be great if I could make the text so it rotates around this as well? That would be really annoying because yeah. I mean, sometimes I, I can't resist creating a viz that trolls a little bit. Like I created vizs that are all pie charts because everyone hates pie charts. And like, if I can make this work, like that's a coup, like everyone hates these things, but like, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Wow. Like to be in your head. Oh, you don't want to go there. <laughs> okay. So something that is off topic, you love salsa. So yes. um, my understanding is, didn't you teach salsa for a few years? I used to run a salsa school in London with a pretty large team and a large student base. It was one of my main passions in life for the last 10 years before I decided to go into Tableau a bit deeper. How come you, do you have any salsa data visits? Like this seems like a, a natural crossover for you. I do not, but there is one that has been on my mind for a long, long time. And that is the genres of salsa music and how they interact with each other. Because there is a chronology, uh, a history with regards to salsa music. There's a roots and influences. And I wanted to picture that in some way, shape or form. I do know hundreds and hundreds of DJs and people that I've interacted with over the last decade. So I am putting that together. That's fascinating. I mean, in my head, I'm thinking network chart, I'm thinking chord diagram, but I know you're going to come up with something far more elegant. It's far more elegant because you're talking about, you know, rhythm, drum roots in Africa. You're talking about Afro-Cuban music. You're talking about jazz. You're talking about Western influences, Eastern influence. You're talking about lyrical influence. There is actually a fascinating history to salsa that I wanted to actually visualize in some way. But because it's a subject that's very close to my heart, I want to do it properly. Hmm. So it's been there for about two years. I mean, I'm looking forward to this because anytime someone's tackling something that they're particularly invested in, you know, they're they're going to make it shine, right? Like, so um, before we wrap up today, we're getting towards the end of this conversation naturally. Uh, what's next for you? I mean, wh- where's all this going? So I'm still trying to keep up momentum. I'm trying to do three periods or three months every year. So that's Jan, Feb, March, take a month off, do another three months. In my next, I would say, set of tutorials, I want to talk about Tableau Server and Tableau Prep. So the two topics that I want to talk a lot more about. I also want to talk more about business intelligence in general. One of the things that people don't actually know is that I very rarely work in pure Tableau projects. For the most part, I'm a solution architect that does end-to-end. So I do want to talk about that process from business requirements all the way to measuring those business requirements using data visualization. So I do want to get into that. And also I want to play with YouTube. I recently hit a thousand subscribes and was quite shocked, but it's kind of a fun achievement. So I'm pushing that angle and also to do more video content. 
as you know, my English has been improving. So hopefully it would allow me to do that. For context there, when Adam Miko told me I had to talk to Tuan, um, I started uh, tweeting with Tuan back and forth and he teased me saying, I guess I'll have to practice my English. And I told Adam, so does he not speak English? He says he speaks perfect English. He's trolling you. Um, so I, I definitely appreciate that. And I, I would have done this. Um, yeah, this this has been a delightful conversation. And it's just like your work. It's gone in a lot of unexpected directions. If you haven't looked at Swan's public portfolio or with his Tableau Magic stuff, I, I really encourage it. Because even if you're not inclined to become a hacker in this space, just the more exposure to the things that can be done are really going to sort of open you up in terms of what options you have and maybe think outside the box a little bit in terms of some of your personal or professional projects. Uh, so on that note, anything you want to promote, anyone you want to shout out, uh, you know, before we finish up? No, but I do want to give a crossover example. And this might hopefully resonate with your listeners and hopefully you find this interesting. I am a salsa dancer, which means I dance with typically a partner. It could be a man or woman, doesn't matter. But here's the key. There are two different types of dancers in the world. There's a type of dancers that have their own unique style, their own flavor. So when your partner dances with you, they get an essence of what you are. I'm the opposite. I feed off my partner and my job is to make sure I create the best dance possible for my partner himself. So when you dance with me, I will be, in theory, what you want me to be. The same goes with data visualizations and my clients. I could walk through the door and say, my name is Tuan, I'm a Zen master, here's my stuff. This is best practice. This is what you should adopt. I prefer the opposite route, which is what do you want to see? Who are you? How do you process information? How do you make decisions? And let me create the perfect viz that would actually enable you to make effective choices cleanly. So just a little bit of a crossover for you. I think it's a great example. And on that, thank you for coming today. I hope we do this again soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. Data Plus Love is recorded and produced by Zach Bowders. Our music track is We Are Legends by Alex Stoner. Hey, you're still here? Um, You're probably waiting for like the next podcast uh, to kick in, probably something better. Um, Thanks for hanging on. Anyway, if you're picking up what we're putting down, uh, consider buying us a cup of coffee on ko-fi.com slash d-a-t-a-p-l-u-s-l-o-v-e. Um, just, you know, drop $3 in our tip bucket. It helps us buy better equipment. It helps us uh, pay for razor blades to keep me from looking like a wolf man. And it keeps uh, Mark's head looking so shiny and beautiful. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll never put anything behind a paywall. And thanks to your patronage. Have a great day. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end. I really appreciate you listening to the Data Plus Love podcast. If you'd like to see more about what we're up to at the show, go to anchor.fm slash data plus love. Just spell it out, not a literal plus sign. Here you'll be able to see our library of episodes as well as interact with them either through polls or comments or leave a voicemail message that I'll put on an episode. You can interact with me personally by joining me on Twitter. I'm at Zach Bowders, not hard to hunt down. And if you like what you're hearing, consider leaving a tip for us or signing up for a small monthly donation at our ko-fi.com slash data plus love. Buying a cup of coffee for the show is just $3 and you can 
can get more if you choose, or sign up to give that $3 or more monthly. Either way, I really appreciate it. Lastly, if you'd like to see more of my public data viz work, check me out on Tableau Public. So go to public.tableau.com and search for Zach Bowders. I'm the only one. You won't have trouble finding me. I promise. So thanks again for hanging on to the end of the show. I really appreciate all of your listens. And until next time, this has been Zach Bowders for the Data Plus Love Network.